podcast where we discuss the competitive side of the game. With me, as always, is Richard, Ian, Alexander, and a special guest today, Pat Bertoli. Uh, so today's topic will be a double feature of Suladan and the Golden King of Abrakan, and uh, we'll be bringing one list of each hero. And then in our open topic, we'll be discussing War Beasts. So Pat is joining us from Portland, Oregon, in the USA, and he is, I would say, the founder of uh, the Portland Hobbits. So Pat, just a few questions to get us going. When did you get into the the game, and um, how did you start the Portland group? So I I, I literally uh, was into the game even before it came out, way back in 2001. Uh, the movie was coming out, and I somehow stumbled across the images of the uh the gw miniatures game online and and i had played some miniatures you know some warhammer not not a lot but a little bit back in the day but had never really taken the serious plunge into miniatures wargaming but the images of the lord of the rings uh models and the first models that they uh were previewing were primarily ring wraiths and the the warriors of Numenor with uh, spear and shield and some of the Rivendell elves. And I, I just thought they looked amazing. I mean, it was like nothing I had ever seen before. The scale looked, you know, more realistic than, than some of the miniatures games. And I was just immediately hooked. So I, I've been with the game ever since. It was hard to find players back in those days because you were literally dependent on you know, putting ads up in your friendly local game store and hoping somebody might, you know, answer them or hoping to run into somebody at the friendly local game store. So uh, it was really just, you know, myself and Steven, who, you know, uh, was a local player who we we played a fair bit, but we kind of had a hard time finding players for quite a long time and played some other games. Uh, I actually had a family. My, My kids got you know, old enough where time got consumed. So I, I took a fairly long break from the game for about 10 years, but came back in in 2015-2016 era. Came up actually to you guys' tournament was what kind of really got me super juiced. Uh, and, and Facebook was starting to become a thing then. So when I came back from being up your tournament, uh, I kind of made the call of, all right, I, I think since Facebook seems to be where the community is at, I'm going to form a, a Facebook group uh, for the Portland area. And that did help. And just a lot of kind of pounding the pavement and everything was on forums back then. So you, we'd go to the local forums and pound, you know, hey, if you're interested, come to our Facebook group. And eventually found enough players that we, we started gaining a little bit of momentum. And so, uh, so yeah, we, we have a group. It's Nowhere near as robust as uh, you guys' group up there. You have you have a really healthy healthy community up there, and even the Seattle guys have have uh, in a really short period of time have built a fairly healthy community. Our community is still a little bit smaller, but we've we've added another you know half dozen players during COVID even, and we we just hosted a couple of you know learn to play days. So I'm I'm excited about where we're at. So did you find out about our tournament through Facebook? I honestly can't remember. Maybe, although it might have been on one of the forums. I remember really surprised um, the first time seeing you and Steven come up because we didn't expect any Americans. 
And uh, you guys just rolled in and said, oh, we just checked into a hotel. And we're just like, whoa, it's not just us. Yeah, uh, I I think it was I think we were on the one ring, actually, is where I heard about it. And I think uh, Jen had been on the one ring and had um, advertised the, the tournament there. And so we, we saw it and we're like, hey, there's nothing going on here. Let's go up and play some games. So so we did. And it, it was yeah, it was it was an awesome experience. It was really great to to meet a lot of new players and to kind of get re-energized back into the hobby again. So the people in our local scene all know that you're like a regular uh, traveler and attendee of our tournaments. Um, yep, Make it, making the five-hour drive up. <laughs> yeah, it's not it's not a close drive. So what what is it that you, would you say that you like the most about uh, tournaments? I mean, it's just it, the opportunity to play one a large number of games in one you know one day or one weekend is, is all, always good and then just you know just uh, mixing up the variety of players i mean in the local scene you you end up you know playing against the same players you know maybe a fair bit and it's always just good to just be able to have an opportunity to mix that up so play some different players so yeah and you know a weekend out of the house and it's also really fun to just go to events and kind of connect with the people at the events and just go out for a beer after and have a few laughs and talk about how either well or in my case maybe not so well you play during the uh, during the event and it's just it's a it's a really fun experience so yeah for sure hopefully we can uh, all play again soon yeah very much looking <laughs> forward to that day hopefully it's not so far down the road it, it looks like it's getting closer at least did you have a question for Pat? Ah, uh, no, no, it was just a comment, but it's not nothing important. You're gonna uh, probably talk about how much you just love Galadriel later of Light, is my uh, guess. So. <laughs> and Legolas. Okay, all right. That's like every episode. Uh, yeah. Gondor. I'm, g- I'm gonna harass you at every opportunity about uh, Galadriel, Lady of Light. <laughs> I guess the last question is. Um, and there is a little bit of a spoiler given our topic today, but what would you say is your favorite faction and favorite army in the game, and why? Well, I'm gonna I'm gonna cut against the grain and uh, actually uh, say that my favorite faction is not Serpent Horde, despite the fact that that's all I've played for about the last well, I'd say the last year, and but I haven't actually played much in the last year, so for the year before the last year, I. My favorite faction is probably Rivendell, honestly. I, I really like, I, I just have always loved the Rivendell models. I've, I've always been attracted to the elves in the books and the imagery of them in the films. So i actually kind of a Rivendell player at heart. Okay, cool. Yeah, because we, uh, we see a lot of Serpent Horde from, from you, <laughs> so that's kind of just what I assume. Serpent Horde is the uh, army that I have been most focused on in the the last yeah couple of years, just because I wanted to get it that army fleshed out, and and I've wanted to play it and figure out kind of how it works. So yeah, it is definitely the army I have been most focused on. In fact, I don't know that I have brought anything other than Serpent Horde up to to you guys' territory in over a year. So yeah, to my knowledge, that's the only army you own. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I was like, I'm like, he's going to say Serpent Horde. If he doesn't say Serpent Horde, he's going to say Isengard. Because those are the only two that I know he plays. That's and true. Comes, yeah, I do, lo- I do love some Isengard as well. Riverdale, and the rest of us are like, okay, we knew nothing about Pat. Pat's a different person than we thought we knew. How can you not love the elves? They're just, they're awesome. 
Thank you. <laughs> I knew like, at least at least one supporter. You know, it's it's funny because I have actually like been slowly building up a Rivendell army for the last couple of years. I love the look too because they look like a real professional army where a lot of other armies are kind of like we just picked everybody that we could find who was capable of fighting, and that was it. So you gotta respect the wicker shields, okay? <laughs> Hey, it is the uh, it is the Rolls Royce of personal defense. So let's get into um, our profile reviews of the day: Suladan and the Golden King of Abrakan. So we'll be starting with Suladan, the Serpent Lord. found in the Serpent Horde list at 100 points, a hero legend. He has a Haradrim infantry hero and man keywords. And he's a movement 6, fight 5 with a 4 plus shoot, strength 4, defense 5, 3 attacks, 3 wounds, and courage 5. He has 3 might, 3 will, and 1 fate. And he comes with armor, sword, and the Serpent Banner. The Serpent Banner is a banner with a range of 6 inches, uh, Suladan also never suffers the minus one penalty in a dual roll while he carries it. Suladan's heroic actions are heroic resolve, heroic march, heroic strike, and heroic challenge. And he has two war gear options. He can purchase a armored horse for 15 points and a bow with poison arrows for five points. And he has two special rules. The first one is poison sword, which means that he can reroll ones to wound with his sword, and descendant, which gives him a 12-inch stand fast. So let's have Pat start out with what your thoughts are on this profile. Well, I mean, it's probably the worst kept secret in Middle Earth that Suladan is is kind of a ridiculously good value for his his points. I mean, he there's a reason he gets allied into evil lists like crazy. Um, the banner itself is is probably worth 40-ish points. So I mean, realistically. You're always taking him on an armored horse. Maybe you take him with a bow, maybe you don't, but it's, let's say you don't. So for 75 points, you're getting a fight five, three attack, three wound, three might hero. That's a hero of legend with a 12-inch stand fast. Um, I mean, it, it, even without the banner, that's that's insane. And then the banner is just super, super good and makes everything around him better. He's a force multiplier for the Serpent Horde. He's a great ally in all sorts of, I mean... Any list almost that you ally him with, although the the main allies that he goes into Mordor and Farharad and Corsairs, I mean, he just fills in niches for those really well. So I, I think he's a tremendously good value. I'd probably say he's the most common ally for evil side, right? It certainly seems that way. I mean, he he seems to be the the primary ally that you see in a lot of evil lists, at least. I mean, Suladan just ends up in tons and tons of evil lists, so... Yeah, I mean, I gotta agree with Pat here. He's just so good. I feel like I've already reviewed his profile multiple times on this podcast because we take him in pretty much every list. Like, aside from everything Pat has mentioned, so, like, Heroic Strike is, like, really common and it's nice, but having the Heroic March on a hero like this is super useful. I mean, like, I guess you could say the only downside is he, he is a bit squishy, 
if he ends up being your leader at defense five in one fate. But, you know, for everything else that he brings, he's just incredible. And if you can make something or someone else the leader of your army, kind of like a Dalamir, then, you know, he, he just becomes, you know, even better, which I don't even know how, but like S tier. So he's just a straight 10 for me. Yes. It, it's honestly like I, I'm happy you touched on the thing with like the march because he's so efficient points wise and because the Harad list in general doesn't need a lot of help doing the killing like its troops can do a, a lot of killing he can just sit in the back line and just provide the banner and then a stand fast when the army breaks and that's that's good enough yeah um, you don't feel like you're not getting his points back if he just sits in the back you feel like he's still contributing a hundred points worth of value to your army that's how like underpointed I would say he is Pat touched upon the ally options, how he's historical alliance with three lists with really good army bonuses that want to keep them. So you can ally them in with Corsairs and still keep the backstabbers. You can ally him into Far Harad, which they really, really need the six-inch banner for the VPs and the reroll. And Far Harad being able to keep their army bonus just makes Suladan like an auto-include. And then, of course, Mordor, too, to a, a smaller extent. Still a really good ally for Mordor. I'd say they're a great ally for Mordor just because the six-inch banner alone eliminates your need for a standard banner. You know, whichever way you move it, you're essentially getting a better banner for a more cost-efficient situation. Plus, this army list in general with Mordor allows you to bring a fight for supports cavalry that is better than, I'd say, most of what's in Mordor. And you get pretty decent selection of bows, which Mordor just does not have. So you start putting that in there with what Suladan can do, and of course what you guys have talked about. Him being able to essentially sit in the back line and still be worth 115 points is just fantastic. Because most of the time you're like, oh, well, he has to fight. I'm like, he can fight, but he doesn't have to. I think you guys bring up a, a good point about him. It, he can be a little bit of a, a trap hero because he, he looks like he's a kind of a beat sticky sort of a hero with the three attacks, three wounds, three might. But I, I tend to prefer to think of him, and I think it's almost maybe better to think of him as a support hero who can fight rather than a, a combat hero. The list he's in, you really want to be able to take advantage of that banner you want to be able to take advantage of his Hero of Legend status if uh, if an army breaks and his 12-inch Samfast if an army breaks. You want him around late game. So, And with only one fate he, and defense five, he can be a little bit squishy. So uh, I, I think the better way to use him is as more of a, a support piece that can be opportunistic and look for some opportunities to get into combat but he's not boromir he's not out you know looking for things to to smash i i will say though when he does want to go hit something for his points value he can really hit hard especially if you have the uh the betrayer hanging around this is very much true yeah three attacks on the charge with his own personal banner if the betrayer is nearby he's re-rolling all of his failed to wound rolls he he will hit pretty darn hard he loves to kill troops. He loves to bounce into small here, like your kind of your mid-tier heroes uh, when at all possible. Um, he does not want to have to get into the, the big fight six plus heroes if he can avoid it, uh, unless their resources have been drained and then he doesn't mind having to go at them. So, Pat, what would you say your, your rating for Suladan is between uh, zero to ten? I kind of 
kind of have an idea of what I think you would go with. Uh, it's hard for me to give him a perfect 10 uh, in that he is he is a little bit squishy. And if he gets isolated or gets uh, into the wrong position, he, he will go down quickly. But I, I will give him a solid in fact, more than I'll probably give him like a nine, nine and a half. So he's for his points. I think he's a, an outstanding value. OK, I was wrong. I thought you would give him the 10. <laughs> I think he gets a 10. Just, uh, you know, whatever weakness he has, to me, it's forgivable for how cheap he is. Yeah. Uh, a couple things that we haven't touched upon is that, you know, Ian mentioned that he's good in combination with the Betrayer. But there are a couple other small like synergies, too. If you play pure Serpent Horde, often you'll take Raza, and Raza has a Swarm Protector for Suladan, so you make him fearless there. And then also, if you run Suladan with a, with a Mumak, I also find that if you can get him fighting close to Mumak, he can stack his banner reroll with the Mumak's reroll. Yeah, and, that's a really sick. Uh, yeah. Uh, yeah, you, you're getting two rerolls there, which is pretty yeah. gross. Especially in the Legendary Legion, because... If you pick him as the leader, he can potentially get free heroic, was it heroic combats or strikes if he fights the enemy leader? It's just a heroic action in the fight phase, so it could okay. be a strike or a combat. Of course, yeah. I'm sure you will always want to take heroic challenge, but you know, <laughs> free heroic challenge, yes. <laughs> okay, so I guess it's just Ian and Alex left with your scores. I mean, Pat raises a good point. Like, he might not be a perfect 10 out of 10 if his points cost were higher. But just where it is, yeah, I think I, I got to agree with Charles and the points. You know, like, it's just so good. So, yeah, I, I give him a 10. Yeah, I've mentally been going back and forth between a 9.5 and a 10. The only reason I can take even half a point off him is, like Pat said, the defense and the only having one fate. If he has to come up against, like, a something really, really big... He can go down pretty easily, but aside from that, he's a 10 out of 10 every time. He's fantastic value. Like I, I think he is the best example of great value, but that's it. If you were 20 points more, you'd still always take him yeah. every time with every army list that we just talked about. So, I mean... Yeah, when you read through the profile, you kind of expect it to be like the Amdor or like Gothmog kind of range. And no, it's like 30 points less. It's like 30 points less for a hero that I would seldom take in a list. And then you've got Suladan just there, just always there. And it's perfect. The second profile we'll be covering is the Golden King of Abrakan. So he's also in the Serpent Horror list. He is uh, 130 points and he's a hero of valor. He also has the Haradrim, Infantry, Hero, and Man keywords. And he's movement six, fight four with a four plus shoot, strength four. Defense 5, 4 attacks, 4 wounds, and Courage 4. He has 2 Might, 6 Will, and 2 Fate. So he's on like a special base where there's two 25 mil bases that are kind of close together but not touching. It's kind of unique to him in this game. So he comes with a two-handed weapon and the Golden Throne. The Golden Throne is a banner. He also doesn't suffer the minus 1 while carrying it. His heroic actions heroic resolve. And he has two special rules. The first one is Burly, and the second one is Riches Beyond Renown, which arguably is why you take this hero. So the Golden King may spend any number of will points whenever an enemy hero takes a Courage test within 12 inches of him. The target model's Courage value is reduced by 1 for each point of will that the Golden King spends. 
The Golden King may even wait for the Courage Test to be rolled before choosing whether to expend any will points. After the Golden King has reduced the target's Courage value, the target may still use Might or Will to alter the Courage Test. So basically, he can use his will to reduce the enemy's Courage Test score for whatever reason they are testing a Courage. So I guess to start, I've, I've used this hero quite a bit. He is sort of like, compared to Suladan, it seems like he is nowhere near as good as Suladan. I think that if you want to compare what he brings to a list, he is more expensive and his banner isn't as good and he doesn't have great heroic actions. What is great about this hero is he can really just munch warriors with four attacks and burly. Typically, you can, because of how his base looks, you can place him horizontally and fight sometimes four infantry models in one combat. The patented bold drift. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> yeah, if you call a hero combat there, you could get another four potentially. The only issue with that, though, is he's only fight four without heroic strike. So if you're fighting uh, like an elite army or an elf army, it's not as effective. It's cool that his uh, Golden Throne counts as a banner for VPs, because not a lot of heroes have that. I think more heroes have the banner effect, so that's still good. Just it's not the six inches that Suladan has. And then the last thing is that the the Riches Beyond Renown special rule is really good if you have an opposing hero making a really important courage test that, you know, if they fail, they'll run away. If it's like when an army is broken or if if that enemy hero has survival instinct, for example, it can really make or break a game. And um, having six will to alter the enemy's courage score is, it can be really good, even if it's situational. You know what this profile reminds me of? That meme where the Golden King of Abrakan is you, and then Suladan is the guy she tells you not to worry about. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But, I mean, I think, I think Charles brought up most of the key points already, like, um, he's just a profile that I would like to play with more, but he's just not quite there. Like, if you want him to use him as, like, a troop muncher, he's only fight four. So it's like, eh, like, you don't want to be losing fights against, like, most armies. So so you pretty much bring him for the courage shenanigans, which I guess we'll see later today. But, yeah, you have to pair him up with, like, ring wraiths or... I don't know, maybe like Dalmir's smoke bomb, or you just have to think of ways for for you to drain the opponent's courage as soon as possible, and then which lets you take out the enemy leader or key targets, you know, later on in the game. So just on this special rule, I, I'm just curious, do you think it's better to try and like save all of his will to make like a really big hero like an Aragorn fail their like stand fast test and run away, or instead target like a couple weaker heroes that have like less courage and less will captain level or like i don't know like a huron kind of thing i mean if your leader flees your opponent gets the points for slaying the enemy leader so my instinct says target the big hero with everything just because if you feel like you can't get rid of the leader that's how you can do it you don't have to fight them well, the, the other thing is is that the, your opponent might be expecting that kind of a thing, right? So then they'll be more conservative with their will on their big leader or, like, their resources, right? Which makes it a lot harder for you to make them to fail. That's kind of what I'm thinking. Well, I think it depends on uh, what your list is and what their list is. Most of the time during deployment, you'll kind of know what you're going to do with the Golden King. 
like if they have a model with survival instinct, like a Shelob, yeah, you probably want to uh, stay close to her when you wound her. And then, yeah, obviously any model that has to take a negative courage test, I don't know, Danither, you keep the Golden King close, or like this guy said, the leader. Well, if it was the list that you took in our last episode with Denethor and Hurin, I'd target Hurin because you have a better chance of getting rid of Denethor. I agree. Like you said, it really depends on the list. I feel like you can use it in a lot of different ways. Just have to get creative sometimes. Well, yeah, you target Hurin if, if you're about to break them. But in the beginning of the game, you might consider targeting Denethor because there isn't a reason that Hurin would be making a courage test. Yeah, I see what you mean. So with all of that being said, I don't really see the Golden King allied in a lot with other lists unless you're doing like this cheese strategy. And even in that case, he is like a hefty amount of points. I do like the banner, though. It makes him a little more worth a consideration. But still, just there's a list of downsides with this hero. I'd probably give him a six. And yeah, so it's really dependent on the rest of your list. I think that's the main reason. He's kind of situational. I really want to like him, and yet um, fight four and no strike for 130 points is uh, it's a little rough. I feel like there were missed opportunities with this profile. Um, if you were fight five, that would make him a lot better, because then he would really be a reliable true muncher. Uh, but at fight four, there's just the possibility he's just going to bounce off so much. I almost kind of wish his Riches Beyond Renown rules more similar to, say, like Lothosac Velbagans, where he could somehow either make his own troops pass Courage Test or um, either buff or debuff, buff his own force or debuff an opponent's force in some way with it. I think that might make him a little more useful. But as is, he, he doesn't synergize with Serpent Horde really at all, in my opinion. Um, I think you've got to take him in a almost as an ally in a different force so i boy it's hard for me to even give him like a five um i'll give him a four and a half i'm not sure i can give him more than that so yeah i I think i agree with all you guys said so far like i wanted to give him like a six like charles but then just like looking at the profile again i don't think he's there maybe if he had like the fight five or if he had like heroic strike he doesn't even need heroic strike though because that might be a little bit too ridiculous. That makes him like a really good fighter and a support character. But then like give him defense, heroic defense, or just one other okay heroic action. And then he, I think he kind of pips up there to being like more than what he's do, do you want a 130-point hero to be your heroic defense, though? I mean, you you kind of want well, a he smaller is, hero. Well, he is kind of he's, he's kind of tanky at four wounds and two fate. So maybe you could give him the role of just the leader that survives, right? Well, you can yeah, put him in that role. Yeah. You could do that, or if he has heroic defense, right? You're not worried about plugging him into like an Aragorn or something, mm-hmm. calling the heroic defense, right? Because if mm-hmm. you lose, it's yeah. you're probably gonna be okay. If you win, you have four plus one to wound attacks against him. That reminds me. I mean, the most recent FAQ, he was nerfed. He is no longer able to be supported by spear or pikes, which I don't understand why. But now he is capped at four attacks which I didn't think that nerf was necessary, but... Yeah, just... <laughs> I, I agree. I, I didn't see why that was uh, a necessary nerf, and it, it did hurt him. I mean, he's not seeing the battlefield a lot as it is now, and he'll probably see the battlefield less as a result of that, so... So, yeah, with with that being said, right now, I think he's kind of sitting at a five for me. I, I mean, the Hero of Valor is nice. The banner is nice. Like, it's going to be hard to get rid of that banner. 
it's just the, for the cost, I don't know. If he's not quite there for me. But, yeah, you can take him in a list. You might have some fun. But if you want to get good use out of him, you're going to have to tailor to it. And at that point, you know, it's not like he just costs 130 points. He costs 130 plus whatever else you're trying to use to make that special rule work. Essentially, you're having to build this whole list around him to make him work. And he's 130 points. Doesn't really make a lot of sense with the profile as you have it. I know we've just said, like, if you gave him Heroic Strike, he'd be incredibly good as a fighter. But he is only fight four. So I feel like even if he got Heroic Strike, he wouldn't be out of this world amazing. Because there's a decent chance he only strikes up to six. 33% chance he doesn't get past that. So I feel like it wouldn't be so bad for him to have that. Plus, he's only defense five. So he isn't impossible to wound. But yeah. Banner is only an average banner. It's not as good as Suladan's. He's only two might. And I, I just think when you compare, especially when we've just compared the two, it makes it really hard for me to see positives to him when you can get a cheaper profile that does a whole lot more for the list. So I'm also going to give him a five. Yeah, I, I mean, I think those are all fair ratings. I might have to give him a four because in the list with Suladan, it just looks terrible side by side with each other. Like if maybe he was in a less competitive list, uh, I don't know, off the top of my head, Sharky's Rogues, the worst list. You know, he he would obviously be better. (laughs) 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 I know what I'm bringing to the next tournament. (laughs) Yeah, but just in a competitive list like Serpent Horde, I think it just tanks his rating even more so. Uh, four for me. Sidebar, is that the lowest rating we've ever given to a hero? <laughs> I think it is. The lowest and then the highest. Amazing. In contrast. <laughs> I mean, if you build the list correctly around him, he is actually really useful and interesting. So I, I, I can see the argument for having a higher rating, but in kind of your standard list, he, he's, he's, not, he's not that great. I'll give my arguments for my rating of a six when when we go through uh, the Golden King list, but we'll start with the Suladan list, and um, this one is coming from Pat, so Pat, take it away. Sure. Okay. So this is an it's an 800 point list, which is kind of the the North American sort of norm for for large tournaments. So it is uh, it is a Serpent Horde list. In Warband 1, uh, we have Suladan, the Serpent Lord, with Armored Horse. In his Warband are six Haradrim Warriors with Bow, four Serpent Guard, and five Serpent Riders. In uh, Warband 2, we have the Betrayer on Horse. In his Warband are eight Haradrim Warriors, seven have bows, one has a spear. There are four Serpent Guard and a single Watcher of Karna with Twin Blades. Warband 3 is uh, a Haradrim King on horse with a War Spear, seven Haradrim Warriors, six with bow and one with a spear, four Serpent Guard, and a single Watcher of Karna with Twin Blades. And then in the final Warband, Warband 4, uh, we have a Haradrim Chieftain on horse with a bow, Eight Haradrim Warriors, seven that have bow, and one with a spear. Three Serpent Guard, and an, a final single Watcher of Karna with Twin Blades. So it's a total of 56 models at 800 points. 
There are 27 bows in the list, one one hero with a bow, and then the, the 26 warriors. Um, the strategy is not super subtle. It's, uh, it's, it's to shoot. It, it's to shoot while your opponent is at distance. Ideally, you'd like to be able to either deploy or move as your opponent is coming to you, because with 27 shots, you should be able to get your opponent to, to come to you. Ideally, want to be able to sort of get into a, a horseshoe or a crescent shape, push your cavalry out to the flanks, and then when your opponent engages with you, then you're converting over into um, sort of horde tactics and trying to, to wrap around. Your typical front line is going to be mostly the Haradrim warriors, and then the Serpent Guard are going to be your, your fight for spear supports. Ideally, the Cav and some of your models are going to get out to the flanks and try to you know, wrap around and take away spear supports. The Watchers of Karna are, there's just three of them. They're pretty much just there for maybe some flanking if, if you don't have to deal with terror, but they're mostly there in the event that you have. Uh, are coming up against something that is terror-causing, or you have to charge a fell beast to keep it from wrecking you. You have to charge a Golivar to keep him from wrecking you for a turn. They're they're just there for that. I gotta say, when Pat said the strategy was to shoot, I pretty much just started applauding there. I thought the show was over. I was like, yep, that's that's all this list truly, really needs. I looked the list over before we started, and very difficult to find a, a spot in the list where I would say something would really need changing. You have the cavalry, you've got the mounted heroes, you're taking full advantage of the Serpent Horde's army bonus, Betrayer, you've got all those synergies in there, you've got the, the Fight Force supports, the Raiders for the movement and for objective taking and charging and more. It does everything it really needs to. I had wondered maybe about Raza being in there. Since you have Suladan, that's the one thing I was wondering if you would consider that change. Yep, that's a fair item. And uh, he could slot in where the Haradrim Chieftain was. They're, they're both fight for us. So you're not losing as much. I do like the Chieftain on the horse, the hero on the horses. Mm-hmm. Just offers maybe maybe a touch more utility. Although Raza, you can kind of do some bluffy things with him when he, if you start pushing him towards an opponent hero, sometimes your opponent will get a little spooked by the, his special rule. So when it comes to Raza, I th- I think I agree with Pat not putting him in there. I, I don't think he's great. Interesting. <laughs> yeah, I don't like him. I disagree. <laughs> that should be the open Just topic. <laughs> split, 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 split. Like in in this instance, right? Usually you'd put in the chieftain or that kind of a level of hero for the march, but because you already have Suladan in the list and the king, like you don't need more heroic march. If you want extra might for an extra ten points of how you have him kitted out, you can get Raza, and then that gets you another striking hero on the list too. I also don't really like Raza. Uh, being like a fight war hero. Yes, the three might is very tempting, but your fight four, your move six, and I've just had so many games where he dies before he uses his three might. Well, the two is also fight four in this instance. So he, yeah, that's right, but he so, is mounted, which is yeah. really really useful. So, okay. The other thing we always talk about on this show is how much we love when we can give our heroes a horse. So I think that's where it really comes down to. You can yeah. mount yeah. the chieftain, which we love, and we love doing that. 
but then Raza has like a he has Grimbold syndrome. But yeah, yeah, he's Celeborn, but for this list. Okay. I have played both of them, and I, I just, I find that I, I like Raza, but I, I don't love him. Um, he bounces off troops a little too often. Not being on a horse is lack of mobility. If he gets out of position, it's harder to get him back where you want him. I, I just feel like I have more control and more options with the Chieftain than I do with Raza. Um, I do like the three might, but uh, yeah, I don't know. I, I've gone back and forth on, and it's funny, I played almost every profile on this list, except I don't play the uh, the Golden King much with this list, but I don't know that I love Raza uh, as much as maybe I once did. So there was a time where I liked him more. Now I don't oh, know that I maybe, love him as much. Maybe I'm still riding that high of just the when I first read the profile. <laughs> I'm like, oh, I like this. I've only used him in one game. You see him okay, so. Um, I, I think my issue with that is is that like yeah, you, I guess on paper it seems like you can do a lot of sneaky things with it, but the thing is that your enemy, if they know the rule, they see it coming a lot of the times. Like he's fighting for against everyone except one hero in your army, so like. It's very easy to avoid that, I feel like. And then, yeah. yeah. I guess it also kind of reminds me of, like, every time you jump into a game with this, it's like you're bringing in, like, some kind of fog of war shenanigans where you start playing those mind games. And I do <laughs> I do really like that. I do think you can literally almost bluff with him a little bit, which is kind of interesting. But Going back to the list, I, I actually really like this list. I think the only real change that I would make is I find that the Haradrim King is a lot better than the Haradrim Chieftain. If you equip both of them with a Lance, he's 15 more points, and he gets one one more fight, one more will, and one more courage, as well as the option for Heroic Strength, which I think that's a bargain for 15 points. I mean, you could probably keep the same model count if you just downgrade a few Serpent Riders, but I don't know if you want to do that. I just think they hit a lot harder. You could ditch one Serpent Rider and upgrade him, and that wouldn't really cost you that much. I do like a few extra Serpent Riders just because of the low defense. They get shot out, and so I like a few extra. But I do agree with you 100% that the Haradrim King is actually far and away a better profile than the Haradrim Chieftain. So that's a fair consideration. Yeah, I'm at the same kind of thing. I think in this, I think I would almost prefer any other of the heroes in the list that are in that kind of like 50 to 80-ish points range, just because I don't see the captain adding a lot of value. You could add in the Taskmaster if you wanted a Whirl in the list really badly. Well, yeah, but then he's a little bit cheaper, so you might get some more might from that. You have a lot of March in there, so you might want to... Uh, I, I take that. it back. There's the second profile that I almost never place in this uh, <laughs> in this list. It's also hard to fit in, but... That, that's yeah, just... I think, yeah, your list is centered around this Betrayer synergy, and I think you have all the tools for that for that maximum effect. This is an example that Suladan doesn't always have to be allied in. He's also really good in a peer list. So I can see this one taking a, a tournament. I'm, I'll give this a Hero of Valor rating. The only thing I really have to be critical of is something that this army has no control over, and it's just kind of the the mediocre defense. You know, there's a lot of, like, defense for in the list. That is the one weakness of it. I think that's the biggest thing to be afraid of. Aside from that, I definitely think it has winning potential. It can podium a lot if you have the experience with it the way you do. So, yeah, it's a hero of valor for me, too. So... No, I haven't really played Serpent Horde at, at, at this high points level, but I played at a lot of lower uh, levels. And 
uh, just jumping back to the tactics for a second, I do want to say with the Betrayer in there and the number of Serpent Guard and Warriors with bow you have, this army is kind of deceptive in that it looks like it's a shooting list and that's its main focus. And then you get into combat and it still just kills like you just as fast because of the numbers and all. Yeah, the other than the Watchers of Karna, every warrior has a poison weapon. So if you're saving... Uh, the betrayer's will just for that. Like he's still earning his like 130 points. It's it's crazy. It's crazy efficient. Like how how much you can kill and how fast. As for like the overall rating, I'm I want to give it a legend, but I uh, I'm at like a soft legend or like a really high valor. I think I'm gonna go for like uh, <laughs> I'm so indecisive. I'll give it a low legend. It'd be, I think if you had a different hero choice in there for the Chieftain, it might be, like, a bit more secure. But it is still, like, super solid. And, yeah, like Charles said, it can definitely take a tournament. I agree with a lot of what's been said already. Chieftain upgrade to the King would be nice. Maybe a couple Haradrim Raiders instead of the Serpent Riders, just for objective taking that you might not be fighting with them. Overall, I would say this is definitely one of the more competitive lists on the evil side, so Hero of Legend for me. Uh, I think I'm going to have to swap out the uh, the Chieftain then for the King, so that makes a lot of sense. I, I like the King typically better than the Chieftain. I wanted to keep my numbers up, but I think there are ways to do that without having to keep the Chieftain, so I will swap him out. I do like the idea of um, giving one of your heroes a bow, though, because you could do something sneaky with Master of Poison, and then um, you have some might to your shooting. So the second list we'll be going over will be um, one containing the Golden King of Abrakan. And this is a list that I've debated taking to a tournament. And eventually he was swapped out of the list. But the idea of it was to use his Riches Beyond Renown special rule to kind of take away the enemy's leader early on in the game. So it is a Serpent Horde and Mordor Alliance. And the first warband is the Witch King of Angmar. 3 Might, 13 Will, 2 Fate, Crown of Morgul, and Horse. The Witch King is the leader of this army. He's leading 3 Black Numenorians, 3 Moranan Orcs with Shield, 5 Mortal Orcs with Spear, 2 Mortal Orcs with Shield, and 1 Moranan Orc with Shield, Spear, and Banner. Second Warband is Kardash the Firecaller, and he's leading 6 Orc Trackers, 3 Moranan Orcs with Shield, and 2 Moranan Orcs with Spear and Shield. Third Warband is Guritz, Master of Reserves. He's leading four Mortal Orcs with Shield, three Mortal Orcs with Spear, and three Black Numenorians. And there are two Mortal Catapults in this list. One of them has the Severed Heads upgrade. And the final Warband is from the Serpent Horde, the Golden King of Abrakan, leading one Haradrim Raider with a bow. So this is a 1,000-point list. It has 48 models and 11 might. As we mentioned while we were reviewing the Golden King, he is an expensive hero, and because of the amount of models you need for this synergy to work, I ended up with a pretty low model count, 4,000 points, I think. And I've kind of tried to mitigate that by taking a lot of cheaper warriors just to get to that comfortable 50 model mark. Even though the model count is a little bit low, it does have some combat ability still. The two mortal trolls that come with the mortal catapults can kind of do some fighting later on in the game. Essentially, the idea of the list is to have the enemy come to me because of the double catapults. 
to use the combination of the Witch King's Harbinger of Evil as well as, as his Drained Courage to lower the enemy's courage values as they come closer to my army. And on the side as well, cast some Flame Bursts on the enemy's heroes to reduce their will store. And once they get close, I'll use the Mortal Catapult with the Severed Heads to fire it at the enemy leader and use Riches Beyond Renown to basically force them to take the Courage Test with a reduction in their Courage value, hoping that they, they will run. I played some practice games with this combination, and yeah, it's it's a lot of fun, but not necessarily consistent. <laughs> I really like it. Uh, I think this is about the only way I can think of that you can actually build a, a list around the Golden King special rule. Um, you need a Harbinger of Evil in there. You need the catapults in there. You only have severed heads on the one catapult. You don't have it on both. Yeah, I, I, was, I was kind of cutting corners to get in every single upgrade for my warriors and as well as the catapult. I mean, I could potentially take one will off the Witch King and give both of them severed heads, but I find that you know, most of the time I'll want one of them to fire normally anyway, and that's why I only gave one of them the severed heads. The downside to that is my enemy could just target the one, disable the one with the severed heads early on, if he was paying attention to uh, what my synergies are and my strategy. I mean, yeah, I guess, I, yeah. I don't know, for only five points, the option when you do get into position of launching severed heads with both of them, I mean, most turns you probably wouldn't, but on that one turn where you have everything lined up correctly. Maybe you'd want them to both launch. I like it a lot, actually. I, I really like this list. I think it's uh, I, I think it's good. I, I like the Black Numenorians there also, um, you know, to, again, take advantage of the, the Harbinger. I'm, I would give it a Valor, actually. I think it's a good list. I think it could really, really wreck some lists that aren't prepared to deal with it. I agree with Pat on the um, Severed Heads upgrade for the second Mortar Catapult, because like if, if you don't take the upgrade, I don't really see the point in bringing a second one, because most likely one Mortar Catapult is enough to bring most armies running to you anyway. And if you're going to go with the Golden King Cheese, you might as well fully commit, you know. That's that's just my opinion. And, you know, also brings us back to Ian's question to us in the beginning, whether we would be focusing on the leader or maybe some like mid-level captain level heroes that might be easier to take out. And with two severed heads shooting at the same time, you know, if you see them with low courage, low will, you can focus them early on and take them out maybe before combat instead of trying to put all your eggs in one basket to shoot at their leader. Yeah. The other issue is um, Arby's with Fearless. So usually there's a model providing the fearless, so either the leader or like a shaman or something. And I guess the second catapult would be the one to trying to assassinate it. Using the reroll to scatter and then the one might on the engine. Hopefully with three or four turns of shooting, I can get that model off the table. But yeah, it's, there's always a chance of failing when it's when it's a siege engine. So. What's the range for the, uh, the the severed heads there? Because it doesn't need to get a direct hit to make you test, right? Is it two inches? It's it's every one within two inches, and everyone suffers a strength three, but friendly models don't have to test. Okay. So it's good to shoot into combat with. Yeah. And then, yeah, because once everything's in combat, it's going to be a lot harder to make sure you have somebody who's, you know, six inches away to scatter it onto, right? Yeah. I would tell you, like, 
what I like about this list is the triple casters because you um, like I think that's the way you have to play with the Golden King because it puts a lot of pressure on the enemy's will storage and, and that's that's basically what you're attacking in your wind condition here. So would you consider the Golden King a caster too just because of his ability? Yeah, I mean in a way because you're attacking the um, the enemy's will store. Yeah, yeah. I think it's definitely a fun list, but given your experience as well, I think depends on the army you have to play and the scenario. It's kind of a hit or miss. Sometimes you'll destroy the opponent, and sometimes you know it'll be kind of a flop. So I think I would have to give this like a strong fortitude. There was an alternative version where I only took one catapult, and then I had the Mouth of Sauron in there too to add an extra spell and extra drain courage, but. Having just one catapult, it, it's not consistent enough with the severed heads, and that's why I went with two, which would only work at a thousand points. So, yeah, fair enough. I don't feel like I have that much more to add, other than the fact that, yeah, when you're able to sit there and say a lot of this army is fearless, and you say, yeah, but there's one model that's causing it, and I have one catapult designated specifically for that one model, that's um. I think I think most armies would call that a little bit overkill. You have your assassin, which is literally an entire catapult. Yeah, once you get into combat, even then, with severed heads, being able to fire into combat or being able to get the trolls to drag the, the catapults up to combat, and then you just have two trolls, it is strong in that regard. The rerolls, I think, from the troll on the catapult make them a lot more reliable than perhaps these types of siege engines were in the last edition. But yeah, I do worry about kind of the potential for it to either be fantastic or a flop from game to game. I think given that, I really do like the list, considering the first thing I looked at was the Golden King, and I was like, no, I don't like it. I don't like it just because the Golden King's there. But then I looked at the rest of the list, I was actually quite happy with it. And I'm flipping back and forth, so I'm going to say it's a it's a low valor for me. It, it can be pretty good. Two catapults really scare me. Two trolls really scare me, especially with kind of the, the severed heads, golden king thing. It's like the only thing that will make him work. Yeah, I, I think it has the potential to do really well, but I would question its ability to do well over the course of a whole tournament. So... <laughs> On my first impression reading this, I was like, oh yeah, this is a legend. Like, I love this, but the potential for shenanigans is so high. You've got, like, the hero selection is, like, is pretty good, right? And then double catapult. That's madness. I, I don't ever want to fight that. <laughs> Done it a couple times, and it sucks. But then, yeah, just when, when you get closer and you kind of break it down, it's it's not actually quite there, even though there's a lot of things that I like. Like, I like having the Gurrits in there so you can reposition all your catapults and put everything together in Maelstrom. And then, obviously, the, uh, the Heroic March is good. And then you have Double Banner, right? Because you have the uh, the Golden King and the Moran with the banner. Yeah, actually, when I was writing that list, for some reason, I thought it was only a banner effect. So I didn't mean to make it a Double Banner list, but there it is. <laughs> So, like, yeah, and then, like, I kind of like the double banner, but also I feel like in this, because you are kind of strapped for points, I'd rather drop that and then spend all those points just swapping orcs for Moranans. Putting severed heads on the second catapult, maybe giving Witch King another fate, I don't know. Yeah, right now, only about one-third of your list is defense six. The rest is going to be, like, four and five, right? 
And once you get into combat, those guys are just going to fade away pretty quickly. Even if you manage to shut down the big enemy heroes, normal orcs, when they come into a, like even just like your standard line, they just they, they start to go down pretty quick. So, yeah, you, you definitely have to play really carefully with the catapults, right? Like, use the shenanigans when you can, and learning when to run them up and get those trolls into combat is going to take a lot of practice. So, because of that, and because of, like, all the finesse and stuff, and, like, you guys have said, some matchups and some scenarios you're just not going to be able to do very well, I think i got to put it out of Valor, but it can definitely do some damage. You can definitely win some games, for sure. All right, so... That was the Golden King of Abracan list. Next, we'll be moving on to our open topic, which is War Beasts. So today, in our open topic, we'll be discussing War Beasts the strengths and weaknesses, as well as strategies and synergies that can be used with War Beasts. So just to give like a background summary of War Beasts, there are currently, I think, uh, four profiles in the game of War Beasts. So there's the War Mumak of Harad, there's the War Mumak of Far Harad, which is the same profile, except it always comes with the Beastmaster upgrade, and it has a base cost of 25 more points, I believe. And then we have the Mumak War Leader, which is like an upgraded Mumak profile with the Farharad King on it from Gondor at War. And then the last War Beast profile is the Great Beast of Gorgoth. So just to give some background to War Beast, uh, what they share in common is that even though they are monsters, unlike um, other monsters, they can't use Brutal Power Attacks. And each War Beast has a commander sitting on a howdah. And when you move them, they can trample over friendly and enemy models when they come in base contact with them. And Pat, do you p- pivot like every four inches? No, you you just pivot the once and then you and then you move. Pivot at the start of your movement and then yeah. you move straight. Yeah. Yeah. And so a war beast will stop moving either when it finishes its full movement or when it fails to slay an enemy. You also have the option where if you come in contact with your own friendly model, you can choose to either trample it or you can choose to stop, which you can use as a, a little bit of a break mechanism for it. Otherwise, it yeah, it has to continue moving until it's it's done. I didn't know that. It can be a neat trick. You can stop if you want to. You don't have to trample your own troops, but it can also be quite fun to, you know, leave a screen of your own troops and just trample over all of them so you can get at your opponents. That's That actually adds a lot of tactical flexibility because I thought it had to, like, once it starts going, it doesn't stop unless it fails to kill. So, huh. I think the last main War Beast rule that they all share is the Stampede rule, which whenever a War Beast suffers a wound, the player with the war beast has to make a courage test and they can use the driver's courage. And if the war beast fails to test, then the next turn, the opposing player can control it. So essentially running over your own models. I guess knowing like having played with and against some war beasts, I would say that the biggest strength to war beast is just that mechanic of being able to run over models and deal damage in the movement phase. Would you guys agree with that? 100 percent yeah 
I mean, your whole tactic kind of becomes about getting off that. In the case of Mumak, you might only even get off one or, or maybe a couple. You'll be lucky if you get off a couple of tramples. But if you get off one good trample, you might wipe out half an opponent's army. So it can be super effective. Yeah, it's definitely the reason you take these guys is for that big, scary trample. And then also, I guess, partially the psychological effect of look at this big, bad model and anything that gets in front of it is probably going to die if I move first. Yeah, I mean, I think to add on to that is just as the opponent, you just have to change your play style, especially if you're taking a traditional like shield wall line. You definitely don't want to be sticking in you know, big clumps against like a Mumak or a Great Beast of Vorgras. So just forcing you to change your, your own game plan if you're coming up against something like that. Yeah, I also think that it's, it can be really frustrating against less mobile armies, especially armies that don't have any movement 8 or 10 or up models, because the War Beast has quite a bit of a threat range, especially when the driver can call a Heroic March. And and that can just be devastating. That has a th- higher threat range than, than your typical cavalry model. So if your force is low mobility, um, it can do a lot of damage to you in the first turn of combat. I mean, and in addition to that, um, both the Great Beast and the Mumak usually are mounted with a crap ton of archers. So we're talking like a shooting tower, basically. So if you're not shooting back, then that's an issue. At least we don't have to deal with poison rocks anymore. <laughs> that is so dumb. Ian, poison rocks are still a thing because the army bonus says it applies poison to all weapons and the rocks are a shooting attack. I thought, so yeah, yeah. I, would argue, I would argue that poison rocks are, are, have not been removed this edition. Additionally, all Hadroom Warriors and Raiders may apply the poison weapon special rule to all of their weapons. All their weapons. Frick out of here. I swear they got rid of this. No! The shooting should not be... Yeah, it's fairly major. And especially from the Mumok, they're really elevated, so they're not going to have in the ways very much of the time. It can be fairly easy for them to to pick on, you know, heroes on horses or, you know, kind of those priority targets. You're going to have line of sight to a lot without having to deal with in the ways with them, so... They can be quite effective. The, the downside is you've got kind of half of them on one side of the Mumak and half on the other, so you can, it's hard to bring them all to bear, but um, the, the shooting can be quite impressive. I guess the one issue Mumaks have is kind of once you can sort of surround them and get a lot of troops into them, you can start to bring them down, but I think the other thing is just that they are so expensive that... Correct me if I'm wrong, it does count as like 13 models, because you would have the 12. That would be 14, up. because or 12, four, and then the driver, and then the right. Mumak counts as one. Right, so it's yeah. 13. Wait, what, does it count one. as two? Yeah. I think it counts as one. It's it's both the Mumak and the driver, though okay. they count as two by themselves. Alex started off on the weaknesses, and I will say that, yeah, I, I do agree that being able to maneuver such a big base is um, one of their main weaknesses. You also have to think about your local meta and how much terrain is on is typically on a tournament table because there are certain like wooded forest maps or like ru- ruins of Osgiliath where the Mumak just cannot enter an area of the board and all you'll be able to do is shoot with them. 
Yeah, I'd be curious. Some of you guys have been to Nova, and I, I have not yet. Could you run a, a Moomak at Nova, or the, the board's too crowded? I, I know they're they're quite full of terrain there, so. You, you definitely could run one, because I think Devin tries to go around and make sure there are, like, avenues, but they are quite terrain-dense boards anyway, so it's like, I wouldn't go with one and, like, try to go top tables with one. It would be hard at Nova just because there would be a lot of areas where your opponent could potentially hide archers or hide things that would make it difficult for your Mumak to get at targets. It definitely is harder. It can be done. But like Ian said, it's definitely limiting. But what I was getting off on the weaknesses getting onto those was just that it is such an expensive model, even if it counts as 14, kind of if you can entrap it a little bit and... You can start to really wear it down because it doesn't have any kind of heroic strike and it is only fight four. That if you avoid it, if you can target the rest of the army, you can essentially fight your way around the Mumak a little bit. But the thing about War Beasts is um, they, they never count as trapped. So mm -hmm. that's like one thing that helps is survivability. So I wouldn't say that if a War Beast is trapped, it would go mm -hmm. down like it would still require like a big hero, I think. Right. I'm aware that you can't trap it. Mm -hmm. I don't mean like to trap it, trap it, as in to get double strikes, but to be able to kind of surround it and make it very difficult for it to go places or for you to be able to get as many strikes at it as possible because it does have such a massive base. You could do a lot of damage, but at the same time, like when you talk about the psychological effect of having to play against a Mumak, when it's a move eight war beast that just tramples in your direction will walk over any of its own troops to get to you and then absolutely demolish entire battle lines. The number of times at like either a tournament or something, I just walk up and I'm just like, I look at my opponent and I'm like, is is that your Mumak? And he's like, yep. And I'm like, oh no, no. Elephant's scary. Biggest strength? Big. Biggest weakness? Also big. Thank you for coming to my TED Talk. Just to go along with the weaknesses of a war beast, I would say that shooting and magic to a certain extent. Shooting because in the case of the Mumak, and I guess of the Great Beast as well, the driver is usually up in the front exposed. Because for the Mumak, you usually, if you're not taking the war leader, you'll probably want a Beastmaster. And then the Orc driver on the Gorgoroth Beast is also in the front. So it can be shot down and then you're, you're out of might and courage is lower and it just goes downhill from there. And then also just how magic works with war beasts. They're usually targeted at the driver. And again, the driver is more vulnerable and he's kind of the piece that keeps the war beast at its maximum efficiency. So if the driver is targeted, then you're in danger. No, that, that jives with my experience plan one in a tournament. Shooting and magic were the, the two biggest um, weaknesses for exactly the reasons you mentioned. There's a couple of things about magic that can really mess it up. Wizards like Saruman that have a, a long sorceress blast, they can actually they can blast the uh, either the Beastmaster Chieftain or if you're say running the War Leader, they can literally blast him off of the Mumak. At which point then he's he's no longer controlling the Mumak anymore. Which assuming they even survive the fall means that you you've just you know, lost a, a huge critical element of, of your Moomok. The other one is Compel, and this could come into play in uh, like the double Great Beast list. And it's kind of an important thing to consider if you are running a double Great Beast list. 
you do not want your war beasts to run into each other ever. And as a result, you don't really want them that close together. If, if your opponent can compel one into the other, uh, it kind of starts this chain reaction of damage and stampeding that pretty much is unstoppable, and they will just both die almost immediately. So magic can be quite, quite scary if you're playing a war beast. So just looking at the upgrade options, what do you guys think are like the key ones for a warming Mac? Rocks because poisonous rocks. <laughs> <laughs> it's crazy. Strength six, re-rolling like all these things. Like, it's only range six, but it's like it's insane. Range six are actually a big deal because you measure it from the model's base, so it actually doesn't shoot very far. Typically, like the target has to be pretty close to the Mumax base. I think I think you usually get it to throw into combat. Yeah, or you knock off spear supports. But basically it means if, we, if the enemy tries to put a concerned effort into trying to kill the Mumak, all the spear supports or even the guys like heroes who are in combat with it, there's like a decent chance they're going to lose their horse or take a wound or whatever, just because they all these rocks suddenly just start falling off everywhere. You could take repelling lines instead and just, again, do the, the green dragon tactic of just drop troops out of the howda to, to peel off models, which is an option. I think Tusk Weapons is pretty essential, since trampling is your winning strategy when you're taking a Mumak. Having that extra fourth dice when you make those trample rolls, it when, increases your chance of killing. When when three strength nine hits isn't enough. <laughs> yeah. I, I think actually the, the Beastmaster Chieftain, from what I found, was the most crucial um, upgrade. Because he gives you an extra courage, he gives you an extra might, he gives you an extra will, and they're pretty important. In fact, somebody did some math on, this was on one of the Facebook groups, uh, oh, maybe a year ago, about what upgrades would help you resist stampeding the most. And the one they came up with was the Beastmaster Chieftain actually makes the, the biggest the biggest impact, so... And then I, I think Sigils of Defiance is actually pretty darn important as well, just, again, to give you an extra an extra dice to resist getting compelled. But it's a little more hit or miss. If you're not up against a caster, then it's obviously just wasted points. What uh, about yeah, the Gnarled Hide for the extra, the extra defense? As someone who loves to take any possible upgrade to defense that I can get anywhere, you know, that's something that immediately catches my eye. But at the exact same time, when you look at it, Mumak's Defense 7 has 10 wounds. You know, I, I know obviously you want to take as few wounds as possible because you don't want to have to take those courage tests, but I feel like for the cost, you can probably find better upgrade options just because, like I said, 10 wounds in Defense 7. It's I, I feel I like think, it's a little bit redundant, maybe. I think you're mostly worried about shooting with the defense. So if the Mumak gets swarmed, you've kind of done something wrong and you've you're you're in trouble at that point and you're you're probably gonna have a hard time getting him unswarmed. I mean you're you're just dependent on a roll off until you run out of might. Defense eight it does help a fair bit against strength two and strength three shooting. So if you're facing a strength three army, then it could potentially save you a few courage tests because you're wounded yeah. less often. But yeah, that that wouldn't be one of the first upgrades I get. Also, Pat, you mentioned when you're swarmed, good luck getting unswarmed. I'm just thinking, have you tried just trampling again? I feel like logically that should work. <laughs> <laughs> if you get it off, it, it, yeah. it's it's definitely the way to go. 
Have you tried turning your Moomac off and turning it back on again? Because that's, that's pretty much... It's one of those things where it sounds logical, but you're totally right. I feel like once you're kind of in that stuck space, getting to trample again can be a lot harder than it sounds like. Yeah, you are just got to be able to win that that roll off. Uh, and if you lose the first one, it you're lower on might now and you're still swarmed and it can be tough to get out of there. You guys have mentioned the rappling lines, which um, I mean, I feel like is kind of important given like that's probably the one that helps you in objective scenarios. And especially if you're running a more focused war beast army and you don't have as many like foot soldiers on the ground on the field, then I think it's pretty essential. Yeah, it's like spider broodlings, but for your Moomac. Wasn't there a strategy where you drop half trolls or something in the middle? Yeah, so the Moomac of Farharad can do the half troll drop strategy. So that's not bad, then. I'm just looking at the last upgrade we haven't mentioned yet is the uh, Foul Temperament. So you go up to four attack space, but you get a minus one penalty to all courage test when rolling if you're going to stampede. So I'm assuming you never take that. I do not see the point in that one. I mean, if you want the extra attack, you want it in the trample, not in the combat. I mean, they're not that high a fight anyway. Yeah, yeah, and and since they're the Mumak is capped at fight four, with the exception of the 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 war leader, they're all at fight four. So I don't know. I don't think adding an extra attack is amazing. My personal choice would be I would always take the Beastmaster Chieftain first. I would probably take Sigils of Defiance second. And if I was considering other upgrades, I would probably strongly consider just going the route of the the Royal War Mumak with the Mumak War Leader. I, I will say that's probably the most competitive option for the Mumak because it comes with three upgrades. Gnarled Hide, Sigils of Defiance, and Tusk Weapons. Three really good upgrades that already nearly adds up to 400 points. And then you also have a a leader that is three wounds, which is the most durable of any of the drivers in the game. And assuming you take him in the Legion, he can call Heroic Strike. I believe if you make him the leader, he's the only one that can call Strike, right? Yep. He has to be in base contact with the opponent's enemy leader for you to be able to do that. But yeah, yeah. You, you can. Or you can combat off of your uh, off the enemy leader as well, if yeah. desired. Yeah, it'd be a free Heroic Strike too. His special rule, though, where he basically, on a four-up, I think it is, he cancels an opposing heroic move that's called within six inches of him, is just amazing. It just means he's so much more likely to get that heroic move off if he if he needs to. And I guess if the opponent wants to challenge him and they're afraid that he's going to get that four-up, then they might call two heroic moves and use up twice the amount of might because right. it cancels the first one. Yeah, not the second, yeah. So just while we're on the subject of the war leader, I think you always run the Legion if you're going to take the war leader just because of the buffs that it gives him. There's really no downside other than you, you lose a couple of, you know, some of the options that you could put on the, the Mumak, but otherwise you, you still get everything in either Serpent Order Far Harad list, so there's almost no downside to, to going with the Legion. So, basically just, just jumping back to the pricing and who you select, so would you guys basically say, if you want to go for like a 
quote-unquote budget MUMAC, you'd go for the basic one with just the Chieftain on it. And then in most other cases, you just go for the Comport Leader. Big 400-point guy. I, I think that's probably a good way to, yeah, to go. I mean, I haven't done the super budget with the repelling lines, and I think that would be pretty interesting to explore. And I do think the repelling lines could be actually pretty cool. So I, I'm, I'm less certain about that one, but I think there's a lot of potential there. Too bad you can't put a demolition in there. <laughs> bad, <Lucas>. bad. <laughs> so is this like the war bats with the the demolition charge that are gonna drop bombs onto the opposing? Uh... Yeah, it, this one would be more like a tank though, the tank commander. <laughs> Just pop a grenade out the hatch, boys. We'll be all right. Exactly. <laughs> I'm playing modern warfare while people are playing, you know, medieval ages. <laughs> Just to talk a little bit about the Great Beast of Gorgoroth, moving on to that a little bit. It being in the Mordor list, I think, is interesting, and also being only 150 points, it seems like it's a lot easier to sneak it into a list. Because for the Mumak, when you put on the crew and the upgrades, it's going to be well over 300 points, and the rest of your army composition is just going to have to work around it. And the Great Beast seems to be an exception to that. It seems like at 150 points, you know, it's that's like about the cost of a troll. You can you can kind of sneak it in and still have like a healthy model count, especially when the the Howda comes with like nine archers. So your your model count isn't really hurt by it, I don't think. The efficiency is really good, actually. It's really points efficient because if you're going by an orc captain, and the orc commander is slightly better than a regular orc captain anyway with the extra courage. But with the nine bowmen, that's already roughly 100 points. So you're basically paying 50 points for the Great Beast, which is really, really good, considering what it can do. Also, I'm not suggesting people would really want to spam out bows and mortar, but I'm pretty sure they don't count towards your bow limit, right? I do not believe that they do. That's the one thing that I, I remember about uh, the, the one that Charles played at Nova is like, there's the three war beasts or whatever it was, and that looks scary enough. But then there's, you know, what is it, like 20-something bows all of a sudden? So, yeah, so that just going into that list a little bit at 800 points, it was uh, three great beasts, and then it was like 10 orc warriors with shields. Like, the main strategy with it was just to shoot and with the three war beasts, also supported by two mounted ring wraiths. I think it was the Tainted, and then either Shadow Lord or Witch King, one of the two. And you don't see the Tainted a lot, and I think it was added in intentionally here. He has a special rule that can prevent both sides from benefiting from heroic moves. And what he tried to do was he would call that ability with a tainted, and then I wouldn't be able to heroic move to pin his great beasts. And so whenever he won priority, he would be able to move them first into my army. And I think that was a really good trick, and, See, and it synergized well with, with a great beast. I like that idea. My only issue with that <laughs> is that it's only two strength six hits. So a lot of the time, it's just going to stall out pretty quickly after a couple guys, right? It's not super unlikely you'll roll under a 4-plus with two dice, right? Yeah, I kind of had the advantage that game because I was running a primarily defense 7 list. I was doing a fountain core guard list, so it would just be like speed bump after speed bump. And it wasn't ideal for him. I could see it working at maybe against a defense 6 or lower list. It might be a little more consistent. I mean, I think that was also a very all-in list. Like, it was just his great beast doing everything. But like we said in the beginning, at 150 points, if you slot him in 
in an 800 point list with like a regular force, you still have 650 points of just whatever you would normally bring in Mordor. So you could probably still get to a near 50 model count. So it would just be like an additional threat that the opponent has to worry about, and you're not relying on it to win. So even if you come up against a Defense 7 army, it's not that big of a pitfall. One thing I do like about this, and maybe I'm overstating the strength of this point here, but you essentially pay 150 points, you get the War Beast, and then you get what is nearly a whole war band of orcs that don't count towards your bow limit. I know their bow fire isn't very good, but you essentially get nine bows that don't count towards the bow limit, and the entire warband is contained on the howdah, and it's partially protected from bow fire because of that in the way, which I think can be really helpful, given the fact that they've got the low defense. You know, it, it's kind of like a self-contained warband that just kind of moves around in a way that is really threatening if you pair it with a standard 800-point list. Yeah, I think them shooting from the platform really helps them in this case because you you don't really feel the short 18-inch range because the Great Beast is going to be up close anyway. And nine of them shooting into a, like a mounted hero is actually pretty scary for your opponent. You only need one arrow to wound that horse. And just being in an elevated position, you have less in the ways, and it just seems like an ideal spot to shoot from. You only need one arrow to wound that horse is also my motto when I'm playing my Mordor list. I always have six bows in there, and that's exactly what that does. I definitely agree. It's one instance where orc bows aren't actually that bad, because, yeah, you're only hitting on fives, but you're always hitting on fives. Like, because it doesn't matter if you move or not. You're always going to be moving, but you're always getting the five. It actually turns out to be decent when you have that volume of shots, uh, even if it's at, like, a bad shoot value. Yeah, I think they're pretty efficient i'm a little surprised we don't see more of them honestly uh i I just think they yeah they they give that mobile platform a shooting they give an opportunity to maybe it's not going to be super reliable but to get kills without having to win fights i i think they're pretty good i mean this this is like really lowering the bar in terms of what's good shooting but for mordor this is exceptional you get a five up shoot that can move eight inches and still get a five up shoot with nine bows, considering what I've seen six honesty bows do in games before. I feel like maybe the reason it's not out is like just because, partially because of the model, because from what I've heard, the original fine cast run of these things was just horrible to assemble. Yeah, I, I have I have two of them sitting on my shelf that I'm, are in progress but not assembled. They came out one, later with one that is uh, one piece, so... Um, I think you have to attach the legs, but it's not two pieces that you have to join together. So it, it's a little easier to, to deal with. I think it became Forge World Resin because I think it was a different color in the box. It, it definitely feels like Forge World Resin, not yeah. the fine cast. So. Any closing thoughts on the Great Beast or the Boomac profile? My only uh, comment is I, I think all of them synergize sort of interestingly with I think they work fairly well with cavalry heavy forces, uh, maybe more so the Mumak than the Great Beast, because they force your opponent to split up. Then you've got fast moving cavalry that can sort of pick off units one at a time that don't have to deal with a you know a formed up battle line. So, in fact, the, the reason I have the two Great Beasts of Gorgoroth is I, I was hoping to put together a double Great Beast, uh, lots of Morg Rider lists, and we'll we'll see we'll see how that goes. Uh, after I'm done with a Haradrim uh, experiment, that, that might that might be traveling north. 
it's not an experiment, Pat. You've been playing Haradrim for two years. This is a full-blown <laughs> army at this point. All right. Well, maybe I have a problem then. Yeah, I was just going to say, like, I, I think the uh, moving around with cavalry is good, but also just anything that also can do damage in the move phase. So if he gets pinned, then you can try and wipe out the thing that's pinning it and then get the move back to go. So, like, camels would perfect example, or even just something with throwing weapons is still handy. Yeah, I, I tend to agree with that. I think the the far Harad Mumak might be scarier than the uh, the Serpent Horde Mumak. All right, so that has been our discussion on War Beasts. Thank you all for listening, and thanks to Pat for coming on as a guest today. Look forward to the next episode of Into the West podcast. Mm-hmm.